Welcome to the Data Dive Podcast, a podcast where we share the stories of real-world data-driven applications in various industries, hear how some of the most innovative companies are being built, and much more. I'm your host, Abraham Cherian, the founder of Data Dive, an international youth-driven organization focused on developing data literacy among the next generation. Today, I'm excited to have Logan Kilpatrick on the podcast. Logan got his undergraduate degree from Harvard University, and he recently completed an undergraduate advanced diploma at Oxford University in IT system analysis and design. He worked as an applied machine learning engineer at Apple, and is also a developer advocate for the Julia language. Welcome to the Data Dive podcast, Logan. I'm so glad to have you on. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. Thanks for the for the generous introduction. And yeah, very much looking forward to our conversation. So could you tell us a little bit more about your background, maybe your experience at college and what sparked your interest in data science and machine learning? Yeah, sure. So I started off my college journey, actually, um, at a small community college in California called Tianza College, uh, which was a, a stone's throw, probably like, you know, a quarter mile away from Apple's headquarters. Um, so as soon as I, I got to Tianza, I moved to California from Chicago to go to community college, actually. And I got there and, you know, so much Apple stuff happening that I ended up getting a, a job working at the Apple store, actually, which was a, a huge um, sort of formative and transformative experience for me, but really sort of laid the foundation for a lot of the work that I'd, I'd end up doing later at Apple as an applied machine learning engineer. So that was a, a really cool experience. And so ultimately my goal was I wanted to go to Berkeley for computer science because it's one of the best places in the world for computer science. Ended up getting waitlisted, didn't end up getting in, but it ultimately sort of paved the path to, to go to Harvard, ended up doing computer science and then my yeah, IT system analysis and design at Oxford and um, all the other things that I'm doing today. So it's been a, it's been a crazy journey, but definitely uh, I think for me, the piece that got me into machine learning and, and data science was there's just so much talk about so much hype around the, the industry and the topic. And I was really sort of probably intrigued by a lot of that, a lot of that hype and a lot of that sort of uh, mystique about what actually happens in data science and machine learning. So I uh, was fortunate enough to get in, get some actual practical experience, learn a bunch of stuff, which was awesome. So yeah, it, it's again, been a great experience for me so far. And were there any times in college that like really piqued your interest in the field or was it more like you started learning it outside of college or like you got interested in it when you were at community college and it just sort of grew from there? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think my original sort of interest in machine learning and data science came from, and we'll talk more about this later, from one of the internships that I was doing, which was at NASA. And the team that I was on at NASA was using a, a mathematical framework called POMDPs, Partially Observable Markov Decision Processes, to basically simulate real-world environments where lunar rovers would be on the moon, and we, we need to make optimal decisions about where the, the lunar rover should traverse on the moon. Um, so really, really interesting use case. But POMDPs, as I was learning about POMDPs, the sort of basic structure of a POMDP is an MDP, which is sort of a, a more simplified version of a POMDP. There's, there's less uncertainty. And MDPs are a really important sort of concept in reinforcement learning. So I learned a lot of the sort of basic uh, structures for reinforcement learning. Didn't end up doing any sort of 
deep work in that area, but all of the literature that I was reading was, you know, people talking about applications of reinforcement learning. So I started to look more into it. And then ultimately when the opportunity to actually make the transition to doing machine learning full-time, I didn't, I didn't do reinforcement learning, but I think that sort of was what initially piqued my interest. And what are some of the most valuable skills you picked up in college? And do you feel like your diverse intellectual interests have strengthened your ability to be a machine learning engineer? For example, getting a master's in law at Northwestern right now. So that's pretty unique for someone in the machine learning space. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I think truthfully, my genuine feeling is that, you know, specialization is is for insects. And I think you really can bring so much more value if you have sort of this broad, really diverse, different background. And I think that's been something that for me, it's not that I went out sort of trying to achieve that, but I'm just interested in so many like random things. Like at some point on the horizon, I really want to do a a master's in, in sleep science. Like I think sleep science is super fascinating and all these other random things that are just sort of not in the domain of of computer science and machine learning, but are just really cool and interesting to me. And all of those different domains, I think law is a a great example of this, really helps sort of strengthen my my sort of broad base of, of background and understanding. And I think going back to your question about the biggest thing uh, that I learned sort of through all of this education is, is learning how to be a learner is, is sort of the intellectual curiosity of, of going out and finding new things and exciting stuff that I don't know anything about, like law and, and sort of having the, the confidence to go and approach those topics despite not having any background or literally any understanding of the law prior to me going into this program. So I think it's, it's really helped me. And I think now, you know, in the next year and a half, when I finish up that program, I think I'll have a lot more confidence as a learner to go and again, approach completely new fields like sleep science or the like. So I'm really excited. Yeah. And I think one of the only constants in like data science and machine learning is the fact that you need to be a continuous learner because the field is always changing and there's always new things to learn. So I think it's great that you've adopted that mentality. Could you discuss some of the internships that you had, uh, whether it was Apple or NASA, you did a few more. Out of all the internships that you did do, uh, which one do you think was the most valuable and why? Yeah, most valuable might be a difficult question to answer because I think they all sort of played a different role in this sort of journey that's gotten me to where I am today. So I think that will be hard for me to assess. But yeah, so I, I think my my first internship was with NASA and in that role, I'd spent a long time applying for different roles and opportunities when I was actually still at community college and nothing had had sort of come to fruition yet and ended up just reaching out to folks on LinkedIn who worked at NASA. And one of the guys that I reached out to ended up responding, went in, did the interview, ended up getting the role. Um, so I was doing like a software research analyst or something like that, um, working with uh, you know some of the new goes our series satellites that had just gone into geostationary orbit at the time when I had starting that internship. It, it was a good experience, but it ultimately led to another internship at NASA, which was 
the software engineering one that I did, which is where I had the opportunity to learn Julia, do decision-making under uncertainty with POMDPs that we talked about before. And so yeah, that was a super, super awesome opportunity. And the software that the team that I was on was actually working on and building for the three years that I was there is now going to be used to actually, and it has been used to plan the traverse for the upcoming NASA Viper mission, which is going to the moon in 2024. So the first Interestingly, I'm not actually 100% sure how this works, but this will be the first U.S. lunar rover that's ever being sent. So I'm not, I know we've sent like other craft to the moon before, but apparently this is the first lunar rover that's ever being sent there, which seemed weird and surprising to me, but I guess that's the case. So yeah, that was a super, again, transformative experience for me. And I think you know, obviously it's opened up a ton of opportunities in my life doing Julia stuff, which I spent a lot of time doing, but it also gave me the opportunity to actually sort of contribute to something meaningful and real. And I went directly from that internship to my internship at Walt Disney Imagineering at Disney. I ended up spending six months there in 2019 working on roller coaster simulations, which was again, a super cool opportunity. Got to, I think the coolest part about Disney was amazing team, amazing group of people. And I was truly like a, you know, there was really no difference in the work that I was doing or my sort of stature on the team versus the other engineers. So I wasn't treated like an intern. I was really treated like an engineer, which I think, again, gave me this really great conception of like, what would it really be like to work here? What would it be like to be a there? I was a system software engineering intern. Um, so again, really, really good experience at Disney. And then again, went directly from Disney back to Apple to, to do my software engineering internship. And, and that was again, you know, the internship experience at Apple is awesome. It's, you know, they treat you really, really well. It's a ton of fun, but very different from Disney in that all of the intern projects at least for a lot of the folks that I worked with and, and for me specifically, they're more sort of prototype pet projects. So you're not really working on anything real. The focus is not build something that's going to impact people. It's show us what you can do. And then if you're good at it, you'll get a full-time offer and then you'll get to come back and work on stuff that matters. So again, it was a very different experience from NASA and Disney in that I was making real stuff there and Apple, I wasn't making anything real, um, but it was still a, a super positive experience. And then after Apple uh, interned at a bunch of different places, Julia Computing, Beacon Biosignal, I don't even know, maybe something else too. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember, but uh, companies based in Boston doing Julia stuff for them uh, while I was still in school. So lots of cool opportunities, but yeah, it's, it's really tough to say which was the most valuable just because of, again, how they sort of played this really special part in, in getting, getting me where I am today. So, And could you talk a little bit about your experience with the interview process you went through to land those internships and eventually uh, different jobs? You talked a lot about in some other podcasts of how you think this process can be improved. Uh, so could you share your insight on that? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, it, it's so interesting. I, I My personal opinion is that there's a direct correlation between sort of the, I've done really well in, in sort of less formal, really sort of rigid interview processes. So like my NASA interview, for example, you know, I didn't do, there was no coding challenge. There was none of that stuff. And that ended up working out for me and being a tremendous success. My Disney interview, um, I also don't think that I did a coding challenge. It was like 
I think the question was the te only technical question I answered was something about like, how would I program like the game of chess or something like that from an object oriented programming perspective. So they didn't actually ask me to code, but it was just sort of walking them through the logic and and my Apple internship interview, again, no coding challenge. I just talked about the project that I had been working on at NASA and sort of walked through a lot of the technical concepts there. So very different, I think, those experiences than a lot of folks who uh, maybe have to do all these coding challenges, a lot of deeply technical code stuff. And it's not that I wasn't doing that work, but I think... Yeah, I'm not sure. I think I'm, I'm just lucky in the sense that I didn't have to go through some of those sort of gatekeeping mechanisms, which are coding challenges and stuff like that. Again, it's not that as a software engineer, I, I'm not capable of doing those things, but now it's from a high level interview perspective, when I'm looking at jobs today as you know somebody with a few years of experience, I just don't want to do those type of interviews because it's a waste of my time and it's not what I enjoy doing. Like I enjoy building real stuff. And I spend a lot of my time in the open source community and in all these other places building real stuff. So it's really hard for me to justify, um, hey, you know, come spend three hours doing this coding challenge for Amazon. And, you know, maybe we'll give you a job offer at the end of this, maybe not. But it's really sort of a loss of my three hours of life, which I hold very uh, dearly. So that I, I think there's a huge opportunity to leverage people's open source contributions to actually be um, sort of a proof of work mechanism to show people, here's the contributions that I've made. And similar to blockchain technology, where you're validating a, a block or a node before you add it to the blockchain, the contributions that you're making can be validated by other maintainers who are actually accepting the code contribution that you're making and merging it into the into the repository, which is like the, the sort of proverbial blockchain. So I think it's a huge opportunity and I don't have any uh, sort of deep insights beyond that, but I'm really excited and I hope that someone takes advantage of this present reality to actually make a tool that helps people uh, leverage those contributions they've already made to actually land new jobs. I wanted to shift gears here and talk a little bit about your work with Julia. So could you discuss your early experience with the language and how you eventually worked up to becoming an advocate for the company? Yeah. So the, you know, again, I, I was fortunate enough that when I joined this, the team that I was on at NASA, they just happened to be using Julia. I, I sort of, and that's the, you know, beautiful thing about life is that you never know what's going to end up happening. And, and really, I, I sort of just walked into it. And, and it's, again, transpired into all of these opportunities in my life so far. So I'm, I'm tremendously grateful for sort of the, the randomness of life. You never know what's going to happen. And people say that, but um, I've really lived that experience of you never know what's going to happen if you go and do something. Um, so yeah, when I, when I joined the team, they were using Julia and they had written the code in Julia 0.6. Um, and at the time, Julia had yet hit its 1.0 release, so had the opportunity to help sort of rewrite parts of the code to work with uh, Julia 0.7 and then 1.0. And as I was making this transition through the different versions of the code, um, there was just lots of questions that I had because it was completely new language to me. All these changes were happening. Um, so just over time, I had to get more involved in the sort of community by asking questions and things like that. And then the opportunity to to sort of get more involved came about, I don't even remember what sort of inspired me to think this, but I 
ended up building a bot that would go and query Stack Overflow questions and send them to our Julia Slack instance so that people could see uh, you know, the new questions that were people were asking on Stack Overflow and go and directly answer them. So uh, just built like a simple Slack integration using Julia and all this stuff and ended up sort of accelerating the usage of Stack Overflow in the Julia community, which a lot of people weren't using just because Stack Overflow is generally toxic and unhealthy um, as far as an ecosystem goes. And I wish that they did a better job of making it a better place, but the reality is it's not for a lot of people. Um, so folks had stayed away, but sort of by creating this bot, it, it sort of helped folks, I don't know, feel more comfortable using uh, Stack Overflow, which helps us as a language gain visibility because a lot of uh, a lot of language rankings actually depend on how active your community is on Stack Overflow. Despite our community being active on other platforms, they don't care. They're only interested in Stack Overflow. So it was good for the language from a visibility standpoint to have Stack Overflow questions. Um, so did that, won a you know, new contributor award to the Julia ecosystem, and then ended up sort of getting much more involved mentoring students through Google Code in, in 2019. Again, that was a great experience for me. We mentored 212 high school students. I ended up uh, reaching out to the folks who ran the Julia project. And, and I was like, hey, I'm really just interested in helping out more in some formal capacity. And they were like, sure, we'd love to have you. And um, sort of the, the rest is history. I ended up spending two years as the community manager and then just transitioned my title to developer community advocate uh, a few months ago. So it's been a, a great opportunity. And again, I think the, the thread for all of this discussion is if you want sort of those serendipitous opportunities to come about, you have to put yourself in the position where that sort of thing can happen. Um, and if I hadn't reached out to them and emailed them, um, if I hadn't have applied for NASA a bunch of times before I got that first internship, uh, none of those things would have ended up happening. Um, it had nothing to do with me being smart or anything like that. It had everything to do with me applying and reaching out to lots and lots of people. Um, and eventually something sort of clicked and the opportunity came about. Yeah, and I think it's it's super cool to see not only how, how much you persevered, like applying for the NASA internships multiple times, but also how you were using Julia at NASA and how much you use Julia now too. So uh, what resources would you recommend for individuals who are trying to learn Julia, who have like different varying levels of expertise with programming? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So we we have a bunch of different uh, resources on our website. So if you go to julialang.org, there's a learning tab up at the top. Um, and that has basically all of the resources that you could need if you want to learn Julia. So we have courses, you know, for people who already know how to program. We have courses for people who have never programmed before. There's, you know, a whole host of resources I'm working on, this is, uh, you know, sort of an exclusive <laughs> piece of content, but I'm working on some Julia resources for W3 schools, uh, which is a really, really popular uh, programming website. So there's, you know, the resources are all out there. It really just depends on how you as an individual learn best. Um, and we sort of have a bunch of different sort of learning avenues on the, on the Julia website. So check it out, find what resource works best. If you can't find one that you think is helpful, reach out to me. I'm, I'm happy to direct you um, or direct anyone to sort of the, the best resources. Why do you think Julia has become such a prominent language for folks in the science space? I know you wrote an 
a medium article about how like Julia is used for climate change models and that sort of thing. And of course you use Julia at NASA. So could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So at a, at a really high level, the reason that Julia has such wide adoption in, in scientific domains is in general, the problems that scientists are trying to solve are computationally intensive. So if you were to do you know, a climate model using MATLAB or using Python, those things tend to be really computationally intensive. And also the sort of tools or the people who are doing the science work are not necessarily programmers by trade. You'd be surprised the number of people in these scientific domains who, who don't have a formal education in computer science. They don't write code all the time. So using a tool like you know, C++ or C or something like that, which is a really low level language um, in order to achieve fast performance to do the work that they want to do is actually a really difficult ask for a lot. Like I think even for myself as somebody who is formally trained as a computer scientist, I wouldn't want to do uh, sort of C++ or C work every day just because it's not what I enjoy. And it's also difficult. Uh, so I, I think people have sort of gravitated towards Julia because it has the fast uh, sort of execution and runtime, but it also has high level syntax so that you don't need to be sort of an expert at programming um, and you can sort of make use of the computational efficiency of the language. Um, and there's also, again, a bunch of sort of more nuanced parts of this, uh, but I think at a really high level, that's sort of why folks sort of generally gravitate towards Julia. How do you see like the data science and machine learning applications in science, especially evolving in the future? Do you think that could be like a major player for innovation in the field? Yeah, no, I totally do. And I think, you know, one of the, the big challenges right now is that there's so much happening in the data science and machine learning space. And all of it is for the most part using Python. And especially you consider like all of the, you know, prominent machine learning frameworks, PyTorch, TensorFlow, JAX, all of these really popular tools are actually built by like massive companies like PyTorch is made by Facebook, TensorFlow and JAX are made by Google. And I'm sure there's other ones that are made by these large uh, projects. I think the only exception to this, as far as really popular machine learning frameworks is something like Scikit-Learn, which is a, a non-focused project and an open source project. So they don't have this large institutional backing. So there's a huge opportunity. Julia as a language and as a tool is 100% the future of machine learning and data science. It's just a question of how to get the inertia for the language and the ecosystem um, sort of going in the right direction such that we're not competing with these other massive open source uh, tools that have tons of money to throw around. Um, but we're also providing the benefits and the value to users who are coming to the ecosystem. So it's a really sort of difficult <laughs> battle for us. Uh, but I, I, I do think that there's enough people who are doing it right now and who are making these contributions that, you know, five, six years from now, it's, it's going to be a, you know, Julia is much more going to be in the conversation with respect to machine learning and data science. And I don't think that's the case right now. I think if you're doing machine learning and data science right now, you're most likely using Python. Um, there's not a lot of people who are using Julia for those tasks. The people who are using Julia are in more sort of scientific domains. Um, so I'm really excited. I think it's going to open up a huge sort of opportunity in, in all of these different ecosystems to really sort of accelerate the discovery that's happening. And, and we've seen this in the Julia community as far as 
what folks can do computationally because the language is so fast, because it's so easy to use, they're able to do, you know, a, a tremendous amount more science than they were doing before, which accelerates the discovery of, um, of new stuff, which I think is super exciting and something that everybody wants, but it's just how to sort of get to the point in the future where Julius has sort of everything that people want. Um, and that, that's, the, that's the challenge right now. Yeah, but I think you guys are definitely on the right track. I mean, if it's making innovation in science quicker and easier, that's that's amazing, right? How important do you think it is to align machine intelligence with human behavior? And how critical will that be as machine learning models continue to scale? Yeah, this is a great question. I think the one of the fundamental misunderstandings that people who don't do machine learning stuff every day realize is that uh, if you build machine learning systems that interact with humans or humans are in the loop, there's just, there's so much nuance. And I think I, I learned this the hard way in some of the projects at Apple that I was a part of, because we, we sort of made these very broad based assumptions about the people who were interacting with these machine learning systems that we are building, how would they act and what would they do? And the reality was, is that oftentimes the, the hardest part about the problem we were trying to solve was what are these humans going to do? We don't know what the humans are going to do. You know, we have some mechanisms to sort of influence the way that they act towards the system. But in general, it's actually sort of a huge question mark what they're going to end up doing. Um, so there you you know, the, the lesson that I learned was you really need to spend a lot of time initially when you're doing a machine learning project, thinking about the people aspect of it. And I think, you know, scientists and engineers are always so excited to solve the technology problem that's there that it's really easy to sort of jump in trying to come up to with a solution that doesn't actually, it, it solves the it solves the problem in a in a vacuum and then you go into the real world environment and it doesn't solve that problem anymore and that was the experience that i had was you know we sort of over constrained this problem to make it easier for us to solve and we just made the assumption that we'd be able to sort of carry over those constraints to the real world environment as well and that was just so far from the truth um, so it, it became a much more difficult computational problem because of those assumptions that we made, which we initially made to try to make our lives easier. Um, so it's it's very interesting to think about those things. And that's why, you know, you need people who have really sort of broad backgrounds, people from the humanities, things like that, who, who deeply understand human behavior and things like that as a core part of building these machine learning systems. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And how do you think uh, those people who are maybe non-tactical, like in the humanities background or who are good at psychology, how can they pair with people in technology and provide value, even if they may not be that experienced with like machine learning or data science? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. It, it probably has to do a lot with like team structure and the stakeholders that you have in the room and the way that you're holding other people accountable. Like I think if we had you know, folks who didn't have as deep of a machine. Like, I think one of the challenges in a corporate environment is if you're interfacing with a technical team, interfacing with non-technical people, as soon as you start talking about technical details, everybody just, it's, you know, they're just not interested or they, it's not that they're not interested, but it's just really difficult for them because they don't know the wording and stuff. It's not actually difficult to understand conceptually, but I think machine learning people or engineers like have a very specific lingo and 
my, my little brother who actually does do data science and engineering stuff, I always use sort of the lingo sometimes when I talk to him and he's like, he always remarks about how, you know, people in the engineering space just make up these words to make, <laughs> to make the jobs more complicated and things like that, which is probably, you know, partially true. But um, I, I really think that, you know, making the, the topics as simple as possible in the conversations that you're having, making sure that you're, you're not sort of glossing over the assumptions that you're making and having those conversations in sort of these multidisciplinary team meetings is super important. Um, and, and the idea that, you know, just because somebody's not super technical um, means that, you know, we shouldn't take the time to explain to them what we're doing, I think is wrong. And I think you, you need to have buy-in from those people so that they can go and tell their other partners and stakeholders, like, yeah, here's actually what this team is doing. And um, that way, if we're doing something that, you know, isn't right for the sort of overall picture of the problem, we can get that feedback. Uh, it's better for us if everybody knows what we're doing and can understand and relay the message to other people. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think your brother makes a great point, like in terms of like reducing the friction with like learning these new concepts, that's huge because it'll inspire more people to get in the field if things can be a lot more simpler and concise. As behavioral AI continues to advance, how can trust be built with users to gather sufficient data like from sensors or whatnot? And how can engaging in effective products be built to retain those users? Yeah, this is an interesting question. I, I think what we'll end up seeing happen in the next few years within the machine learning space is a few different pieces with respect to limiting the amount of data that's actually needed in order to do machine learning. Like right now, traditional machine learning is you know, it doesn't have the trust as part of the system because the idea for Google, any of these other big companies that need a lot of data for machine learning is we're just going to take, 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 and we're going to use all that all that data that we collect on you to build products that, you know, actually might provide you value. Like I think YouTube is a great example of this, you know, the YouTube algorithm, you know, finds me great videos for me to watch whenever I want to. But the downside to that is, you know, they know every single video that I watch and how long I watch it and all those things. And that's just the way that traditional machine learning problems have been tried to solve. But I, I think that you'll have uh, things like zero shot learning, which is, you know, using, you know, really minimal amount of data to solve machine learning problems, I think is going to be with, with a high accuracy is actually going to be a huge thing in the future, minimizing the amount of data that's needed to solve some of these problems. And also like tons of stuff in, in federated machine learning and privacy preserving machine learning, all of those techniques are, are getting so much more advanced that again, at some point in the future, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, again, companies like Google don't need to actually have your, the actual, like be able to see what videos you've watched and they can still sort of do machine learning on that data without having access to it. And I think, again, for us as users of the internet, like until those things come true, you know, I have no trust in any companies that I that I interface with on the internet. The assumption that I make is that, you know, they're they're gonna take my data and they're gonna, you know, do something shady with it. I think the one exception of this actually is in, in my personal opinion, Apple. And I think Apple has actually sort of made you know, made the statement that privacy is a fundamental human right and privacy is, is part of the ethos of the company and products and services are built uh, to actually maximize your privacy and only taking the amount of data that's absolutely necessary to, to make some 
essential service um, and and being really intentional about uh, when we make those decisions. So I, I think it's a huge point of controversy. And I also think that companies are, are slowly realizing that there's a there's a lot of value. Customers want privacy, like all the Google uh, ads that I get now are talking about how they're so secure and so private and not doing anything with my data, which I find funny. But yeah, that's, that's the reality of, of sort of the consumer sentiment shifting over time from, I don't care what you do with my data to, hey, I really don't want you to have any of my data. It's mine. It's not yours. So I think you talked a little bit about it there, but what do you see are some of the most pressing challenges as data science and machine learning continue to evolve? Yeah, I would, again, you know, as a two, two different points here, as a, as a machine learning engineer and somebody who used to be a software engineer, I think uh, the two fields will converge significantly. Like I think right now you have people doing machine learning, uh, like I'm an applied machine learning engineer. So my job isn't to, or my job was not to research new machine learning techniques and, and ideas, but really to take machine learning technology and apply it to real world problems. And I think that job, again, will converge with software engineering in the next five to 10 years, just because there's so many overlaps and, and machine learning will just become a part of every computer science software engineering curriculum. Um, so there won't be as much delta between the two fields anymore. Like, again, you'll just need to use machine learning to solve software engineering problems. The other piece of this, and again, this isn't, you know, a new or original idea from me, but really all of the advancement that's happened in machine learning in the last 30 years has basically come from the expansion of the size of data sets and the available computational resources. There hasn't been any like, you know, crazy fundamental breakthroughs. We're just solving problems faster with more data. And we have, you know, billions of GPUs that we can use to solve problems. And I think that can only continue to scale up to a certain level. There, there needs to continue to be fundamental breakthroughs in machine learning technology in order for these fields to evolve. Because again, you know, we'll eventually run out of space for GPUs and to make faster, whatever, larger models, faster models, whatever it is. So we need breakthroughs and we need people doing that research. And I think that that'll be super important to, um, again, continue to figure out new ideas and not just make things faster with more data and more GPUs. That wraps up part one of the Data Dive podcast with Logan Kilpatrick. Stay tuned for part two, where Logan and I discuss the intersection of machine learning and healthcare, what skills he has developed that has empowered his success in academia, machine learning, and as a content creator, and much more.